And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. He's founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Cal, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thank you very much, Dan. It's great to be back with you. What a what a wonderful time of year this is as we look forward to Thanksgiving. We, we see fall colors and just enjoy the, the beauties of God's great creation. Amen. And uh, dear listener, I want you to just imagine that you're walking with Dr. Beisner outside today, uh, enjoying God's creation, because actually this uh, telephone conversation is being conducted as he's walking outside, so uh, I think we'll have a lot of fun. Um, Dr. Beisner, uh, there's so many things we could ask you, but um, maybe we'll start on this one. Um, There's something in Scripture's that some theologians call the dominion mandate. I'm wondering how that concept, which comes from certainly Genesis, etc., um, what kind of implications are in there regarding caring for the environment? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, especially because uh, in the Western world it has become common to blame uh, the Bible's dominion mandate for environmental destruction. Uh, a fellow named uh, uh, Lynn White, who's actually a medieval historian, wrote an article in Science magazine back in 1967 called The Religious Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, in which he claimed that Genesis 1.28, in which God, having created Adam and Eve in his own image, blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. White says that that verse is uh, something that has been used by uh, Christian thinkers or, or people in Christian civilization for many centuries as an excuse to abuse the earth. Well, in fact, that is a caricature. You can go through all of rabbinic commentary before the time of Christ, and all of Christian as well as Jewish commentary after the time of Christ on that verse, and and frankly, never find any commentators, any theologians, using the verse that way. Instead, I think what we need to do is to understand that verse in terms of its biblical context, and Uh, That context is the creation work of God. What we learn about God in Genesis 1 is, first and foremost, that he is a wonderful creator. He makes all things out of nothing. He makes light out of darkness. He brings order out of chaos. He brings greater order out of less order. He brings life out of non-life, and he brings a great variety, a wonderful abundance of life, and makes it all fecund. Uh, This is a a really wonderful picture, and since we are created in God's image, uh, we have the task of exercising a dominion over the earth that reflects that dominion of God. Uh, so at the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, we we kind of try to summarize that by saying that what this dominion mandate of Genesis 1.28 requires is that men and women made in God's image labor lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. That's essentially what we think of the dominion mandate. 
That's very helpful. And uh, I hope that listeners will visit you online, by the way. The uh, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation is found at cornwallalliance.org. And it's just a wonderful website. Let's continue this theme just a little bit regarding uh, so-called carbon emissions. And that that term always frustrates me because I know that uh, it's intended to paint a, quote, black picture (laughs) of of dirty carbon being released. And what is really meant is carbon dioxide, which is a clear, odorless gas that trees love. Um, So let's talk about carbon dioxide, and um, we're led to believe in modern times that that is one of the best measures of stuff that is hurting our environment. Can you take that and and help help us understand a little bit more now? Sure. Well, to start with, we can say that the truth is exactly the opposite. Rising CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere are among the very best things we can imagine for the the entire Earth, for everything that lives on the Earth. Um, But why is it that some people think the opposite? Why do they think that adding CO2 to the atmosphere is causing harm? Well, they think so because uh, carbon dioxide is one of a variety of different what are called greenhouse gases. These gases absorb infrared radiation, that's heat, as it bounces from the surface of the Earth back towards space, and then they re-radiate that spherically around themselves, these molecules do. And so that means that some of that energy that was going to go back out to space comes back toward the surface of the Earth instead and warms it. Now, that's pretty basic physics, and I don't know, I don't know uh, many people at all who question that, even people who, like me, think that CO2 is not a danger to the Earth. The problem is that folks have come to think that CO2 concentration in the atmosphere is sort of the control knob for global temperature. And that's despite the fact that uh, some, 85, some 80% of all of the greenhouse effects comes from water vapor, not from CO2. And the next most important gas on that is quite likely, uh, in terms of some recent discoveries, to be methane, particularly at high altitudes in the atmosphere. And water vapor and methane together probably uh, probably account for about 99% of the greenhouse effect, leaving very little, very little left for CO2 to do. Historically, the, the case for CO2 as driving temperature is very weak. Uh, the reason for that is that we know that CO2 concentration has been advancing rapidly for at least the last 250 years, uh, that is, since early in the uh, uh, Industrial Revolution. And yet, over that period, there have been periods of significant warming and significant cooling back and forth repeatedly between those two. Well, if <laughs> if the Earth can be cooling while CO2 is increasing in concentration, then it seems to follow that it's not likely that the increase in concentration of CO2 uh, simply warms the Earth. And what we actually find is that the relationship between CO2 and temperature is backward from what you would expect if it were driving warming. That is, temperature tends to warm first, and then CO2 rises. The reason for that is that as the ocean warms, it outgasses CO2. So basically, CO2 isn't controlling temperature, but it does feed plants. You mentioned that trees love it. Well, not just trees, but all the rest of the plants on the Earth love 
CO2, which means that as CO2 concentration rises, you get more growth of all the plants on the earth, and that includes agricultural crops. That means more food for everything that eats plants and everything that eats something that eats plants. And the ones who benefit from, the mo- from that the most are the world's poor, for whom more abundant food means more affordable food. Oh, that's a wonderful point. Yes, exactly. Um, that's helpful. So CO2 is, is actually a good gas, and um, it's not politically correct to even say that today. And, and it's unfortunate that, <laughs> that politics drives science and that we have to worry so much about offending somebody instead of using just good science to talk about the facts on the ground. Right, uh, right. You know, I. Um, what about hurricanes? We, um, we've seen some past hurricanes um, several years ago. We had a couple hurricanes that came up the East Coast. Certainly, we got hit pretty heavily. Uh, more recently, there were some hurricanes. People might um, be inclined to think that hurricanes are getting worse and worse. Uh, yet, some time ago, I remember there was a Hurricane Camille back in the 60s. And that that killed uh, a tremendous amount of people. I believe it was a Category 5 hurricane that, as it came to land. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about hurricanes? Well, uh, climate alarmists, those who think that our emissions of CO2 are driving dangerously rapid global warming, uh, claim that as the world warms, we should see more frequent and stronger hurricanes. Now, there's a theoretical reason to challenge that claim, and I'll explain that in a moment. But first, let's just simply look at the data. It's, it's very unwise to, to think in terms of just individuals' memories. Uh, you know, gee, there were fewer hurricanes when I was young, or gee, it snowed more when I was young, or something like that. We need to look at really carefully gathered, carefully archived data over the years. And those data show very, very clearly that there has been no increase in the frequency or the intensity of hurricanes over the period during which supposedly human emissions of CO2 have caused rapid global warming. Uh Uh, In fact, (laughs) on the contrary, there's been a uh, marked reduction in the overall energy of of, uh, tropical cyclones, which is another term for hurricanes, over that period. There has been uh, a slight reduction in the frequency of them, and that points to what I mentioned a moment ago, the challenge to the notion that uh, that a warmer Earth means more hurricanes. There's actually a very good reason to think the opposite. And the reason for that is that greenhouse gas-driven global warming, according to our best understanding of how it works, happens primarily toward the poles, the north and south poles, primarily in the winter, and primarily at night. That is, it raises the lowest temperatures. It doesn't raise already high temperatures. The result of that is a decrease in the difference in temperature between the tropics and the polar regions. Now, hurricanes are basically heat transfer machines. Their job in the climate system is to move move heat from the tropics to the poles. The less difference in temperature there is between the tropics and the poles, the less need there is for hurricanes to function. And in fact, they function less. When I pointed this out, oh, 
uh, about about 12 years ago. Uh, I had some media people just ridicule me, and then I got a phone call at my office where I used to teach at Knox Theological Seminary, and the caller turned out to be Dr. Neil Frank, who had been the longest-serving director of the National Hurricane Center. And I thought to myself, oh no, I'm in trouble now. (laughs) And instead, he said... I've called to tell you to stand by your guns. You're absolutely right. Well, how about that? (laughs) And since that time, Dr. Frank has become a senior fellow of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. He's one of the world's top climate scientists. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, And I I should say again, we are talking today with Dr. E. Cal Beisner, and he's founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And before I forget, Cal... um, I think that your group depends on donations, and uh, I'm just wondering. We do. Um, I, a little birdie spoke in my ear. Some one of, one of my contacts actually, and said he really needs some donations. So, how are you guys doing anyway? Well, it's been a tough year for us. It has been for pretty much all nonprofits in uh, presidential election years and in midterm election years. A lot of people shift their donations from nonprofit charitable organizations to political campaigns. Uh. That's understandable, but hey, <laughs> if you're with the nonprofits, it can really hurt. So yes. we've, we've had a real tough time this year, and uh, we would just be so grateful if some of your listeners were to go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the donate button. They can just scroll down to the bottom of the page and find that, or on most of the pages, uh, it's actually near the top. Click on Donate, and they can use our our secure online site to make a donation by credit card. Uh, Or what would be really wonderful is if they would actually become automatic monthly donors. Every little bit helps, and that helps us especially by helping us to plan and budget. At any rate, cornwallalliance.org. Click on the Donate button, and we would be very grateful for assistance. And it is tax-deductible, by the way. Yes, and it's one of the few groups out there that are uh, truly um, scientific in their approach. They don't follow the political correctness model, and so they they seek to really get to the bottom of truth, and that's why I particularly like your group there, Cal. Well, thank you, Dan. Let's talk about uh, population just a little bit. Uh, in the last sure. 10 minutes remaining. Um, I also feel, a pre- you know, my wife and I have four children. They're now grown. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we could have had more, I think we would have. We didn't start out that way. We kind of morphed into a, a larger family perspective over time. And um, mm. so we kind of started to understand that God really loves children. And, and to, to you know, to a Christian family... Um, there's no coincidence. God providentially places that child into your home. But let's talk about children. Um, I, I think, you know, with respect to their environment, um, some would almost tell us that, oh, it's it's a danger to our environment to have too many children. Have you ever heard of that, and, and what might be your oh, response? Yes, many, many times I've, I've heard that, the, the idea that the world is getting overpopulated, that it's, uh, we're, we're running out of resources because people consume too many resources, it's going to be increasingly difficult to feed a growing population, and so on. 
And again, as I said earlier in talking about another issue, um, it's very important for us not to rely on personal anecdotal memories, but to look at hard data. And the hard data tell us some very interesting things. As human population has grown over the last 300 years, human production of food and all sorts of other resources has grown much more rapidly. And the result has been that though we have far more people, they have far more food to eat than they did before. One of the consequences of that is a declining death rate. (laughs) Not that people don't die at all, but that they live longer before they die. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, uh, average life expectancy at birth was about 27 or 28 years, and roughly half of all children died before their fifth birthdays. Uh, that was a sad situation, and hunger was one of the most, pr- most common problems that people faced. Today, far fewer people in the world, as a percentage of the population, face hunger or starvation. And that's because people are creative and productive. See, the environmental movement basically sees human beings as consumers and polluters, using up the Earth's resources and poisoning the planet while we're at it. The Bible presents us instead, because we're made in God's image, as able to be creative and productive as he is, and able to be good stewards of the earth, particularly as the gospel of Christ spreads, and more and more people are reconciled to God, and turn to his word and learn from that how to live. The Bible tells us in Psalm 127, children are a gift from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is his reward. Like arrows in the hands of a mighty man, so are children in the days of one's youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Uh, By the way, (laughs) somewhere or other I read that the average Hebrew quiver could hold about 60 arrows. Not sure how many (laughs) of us are prepared for that many children, (laughs) but you get the idea anyway. (laughs) My wife and I had seven children, and we now have nine grandchildren. We're very grateful for all of them. But the notion that that uh, the world is getting overpopulated is, is, I think, quite mistaken. There are, in fact, no demographic data by which to define overpopulation. Uh, we're typically told, for instance, that sub-Saharan Africa is overpopulated. Well, its population density is around 45 people per square mile. The population density of Western Europe, by contrast, is several hundred people per square mile. But we're never told that that's overpopulated. So it's not density that determines overpopulation. It's not population growth rate that determines overpopulation. Basically, if you look at the history of the population control movement, it's color of skin. Most of the population control movement grew out of the eugenics movement of the late 19th century. uh, And and consistently, it is people in the uh, northern, western, white world who have said that the world is overpopulated, but they constantly point at people of black and yellow and red skin and brown skin, not white skin, as the examples of overpopulation. It's a terrible thing. And it's completely contrary to the biblical realization that there are no races but one, the human race, and all of us are made in God's image, all of us are, are sacred, and all of us have the capacity, especially as we come to know Christ and to live in obedience to Him, to to be productive, to make the world a better place to live, not a worse place.
Oh, amen. Yeah, that that's that puts it very well. Um, trying to think what else we can cover in the short time remaining, and I, I'm oh, the engineer part of me wants to go to electric generation just a little bit and get your thoughts on that. <laughs> I can't resist. I hope you don't mind. Um, there's uh, various ways to generate electricity. Electricity is just a wonderful blessing to us. I don't know what we'd do without it. Sure it sure is. Uh, we certainly wouldn't have the ability to communicate like this over the air. Um, how is most of our power generated? Are there statistics uh, that that you can remember? Yeah. Yes, there are. Uh, worldwide, about 86% of all the energy that the world uses uh, comes from fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas. And particularly for electricity, roughly 80% of all the, all the electricity the world uses comes from coal, oil, and natural gas, especially coal and natural gas. Um, another roughly 20% comes from nuclear, uh, and then uh, about 4 or 5% comes from hydro, that is from uh, electric-generating dams on rivers. And then a tiny percentage, under 2%, comes from renewables, including wind, solar, geothermal, and biofuels, uh, such as uh, ethanol made from corn and so on. And the simple fact is that uh, the, the fossil fuels and nuclear and run-of-river hydro are far and away the most efficient way to generate electricity. Uh, the result is less expensive electricity, and electricity is crucial to people's health and well-being, uh, particularly in the developing world. Uh, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, uh, the average sub- sub-Saharan African woman spends about six to eight hours a day do, doing nothing but gathering wood and dried dung, which she uses as her primary cooking and heating fuels. The smoke from that, the World Health Organization estimates, kills about two to four million people a year, mostly women and young children. And, of course, the time gathering that wastes an enormous amount of time these women could otherwise use in much more productive ways. It's crucially important, if these people are to grow out of poverty, that they be able to have abundant, affordable, reliable energy from electricity especially, and that's going to come from coal and natural gas primarily in those locations of the world and later on from nuclear as their technological abilities rise. Uh, and it will not come from wind and solar because wind and solar are far more expensive and far more reliable. The wind's not always blowing, the sun's not always shining, and that re- means that in order to have a stable electric grid, you have to have 24-7 backup constantly by fossil fuel or nuclear plants uh, to make up for the fluctuations in energy generated by wind and solar. Uh, it's, it's really a terrible way to try to provide the abundant, affordable, reliable energy that is indispensable to lifting and keeping any whole society out of poverty. Yes, um, it's very helpful, those statistics. Uh, so little is actually coming from the renew- so-called renewables, and yet they're pushed, um, they're pushed by our political leaders so that um, money um, is spent from our taxes going to a few that implement um, these re- so-called renewables. And it, and it kind of yeah. bothers me. I'd rather have the free market just uh, conduct this, and I think it would be a, a lot better for everyone. 
Yeah, that certainly would be the case. And in fact, it would be much better for the environment as well. Uh, the, the rare earth metals that are indispensable to the making of wind turbines and solar arrays uh, require uh, extremely intensive uh, toxic mining processes. And as a result, we, there are areas, especially in China and in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly the, the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, where uh, toxic waste from these mining activities and, and the refining activities is an enormous problem that is causing vast human uh, sickness and premature death. Uh, and after the solar arrays and the wind turbines are uh, are exhausted when they've been used to the extent of their their usable service life. Uh, disposing of these things is very difficult, very expensive, and often results in further pollution. So actually, despite the fact that most people think the opposite, the best cradle-to-grave uh, you know, life cycle assessments indicate that uh, coal and natural gas are better sources of electricity than wind and solar, not only for the economy, because they're cheaper, but also for the environment. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And that, of course, is not even that, of course, is not even to mention the fact that when you burn coal and natural gas to produce electricity, you put CO2 into the atmosphere, which does not significantly warm the earth, but does feed all the plants, which means it feeds everything that eats plants. <laughs> that's so true. Well, today it's been fun. Uh, we're, we've been talking with Dr. Beisner, and he's the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. They could use your donations. They're found at cornwallalliance.org. And uh, there's also a picture there of Dr. Beisner, and we really appreciate your work. I I wish that we could talk more often, but uh, we don't always get around to doing it. But thank you for making time for us today, Dr. Beisner, and we, we trust that the Lord blesses your work there. Well, thank you very much, Dan. And just if there is a moment, uh, let me mention that through the end of November, we are sending, as our way of saying thank you for a donation of any size, a copy of a brand new book by Dr. Roy Spencer, who's one of the world's leading climate scientists, called Global Warming Skepticism for Busy People. All they have to do is go to the Cornwall Alliance website, click on the donate button, make their donation, and ask for uh, Global Warming skepticism for busy people, and we'll be glad to send it, no matter what the size of the donation. Oh, that's beautiful. And uh, don't hold back giving, because uh, even small donations, they go a long way. Uh, Dr. Beisner, thank you for joining us today. Dan, thanks very much, and the Lord bless your work. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 